Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Those words are attributed to Corey Ten Boom. And like her, I want to encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus during these unusual times. We have good news for you this morning about our church's family gathering. We plan to reopen worship a week from this day, Sunday, would be June 14th, with three services of no more than 50 persons each at 8.30 and 9.45 and 11. And we'll be sending out a letter via email to you very soon that will detail uh, our reopening plans. And we'll ask you if you know somebody who's a regular attendee that doesn't have email, maybe print a copy and make sure they get it so that everybody gets the news. Theoretically, then, this would be the last time that we have to do this, and that means this is your last opportunity to take a picture of your quarantine worship. If you have not done that already, please do so. Take a picture of your quarantine worship, and you can send that to Amy in the office, UBC at ubcellsworth.org. You can send it to me, pastor at ubcellsworth.org. Lastly, this morning, we're going to be led in prayer by Elder Steve McDonald. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day as broken people living in a broken world. We don't have to look very far to experience the world's brokenness. As we feel the weight of the world's problems, Lord, I pray we would desire you above all things. We know you created us for a different existence than the one in which we now toil. God, you are good, and in your creation, you made everything good. You created everything, and you need nothing from us. Lord, we praise you because we were made for your glory. Lord, give us wisdom in our actions and responses to these times. We know we will one day be accountable to you for our words and our deeds. May our words and our deeds bring glory to you. Lord, help us to see what part we have all played in the world's brokenness. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, all of us have told you with our actions, I don't trust you to provide the best life for me. I know what's best for my life. I reject your love, I reject your wisdom, and I will do things my way. Father, forgive us for not desiring to find our true fulfillment in following you. Lord, open our eyes so we may delight in your glory. The fallen world we live in is tragic. Lord, in this world, we are surrounded by the consequences of sin. At times, the consequences of sin are manageable. Life goes on with no major bumps in the road. At other times, this fallen world touches our lives in a way that we can't ignore the fact. There is something terribly wrong with the world we live in. While we are surrounded by tragedy in this world, there is also a beautiful story of redemption that is playing out. You are our creator, and you are also our redeemer. You have promised to redeem and restore your entire world as we experience struggles in this world, Lord, help us to look to your son in faith. 
so that we may find forgiveness and healing. We are so lost and broken. We can't fix ourselves, and we certainly can't fix this broken world we live in. Thank you for coming to this world to seek us and to save us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the perfect life that he lived. At the cross, Jesus willingly took the punishment that was due to us for our imperfect, rebellious lives. Crucifixion was a horrible public death. It was humiliating, it was painful, and every breath was a struggle for our Lord and Savior. Lord, open our eyes to see how heavy the sin of the world was on the Savior of the world at the cross. Open our eyes to the power of the cross. At the cross, we were forgiven. Death was defeated, and we can now be reunited with God. As we remember how our Savior suffered on the cross, fill us with your spirit so we may respond in a loving way to the world around us. Remind us that it is in the darkest moments that the gospel of Jesus Christ shines its brightest and most brilliant. Help our actions to be motivated by the love we have been given by our Savior and not the expectation of receiving anything in return. Fill us with joy, a supernatural gladness that comes from knowing you and isn't dependent on the circumstances we are surrounded by. Give us peace, even in the middle of chaos. May our peace be anchored in our knowledge that you control the events of the day. Help us to be patient so we may endure as we wait the coming of your kingdom. Help us not to be focused on our own needs, but the act of kindness, thinking of the needs of others first. Fill us with self-control, allowing our desires to submit to the things we know are pleasing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for redeeming us and delivering us from this fallen world. May our lives bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Steve. The cutting room floor may not even be a thing anymore, but once upon a time, filmmakers, whose medium was literal film, had to decide what to include, what shots and scenes would make it into their finished product, and as importantly, they had to decide what not to include. Some of their creative effort made it to the real, and the rest of it, well, it fell to the cutting room floor. When it comes to sermon preparation, a similar exercise occurs. Not everything that a pastor researches or writes or prepares or thinks about for a message makes it into the message. A lot of information, in fact, is edited out of that final Version That's particularly true when in these times we're trying to shorten the length of our messages to, to uh, take into account those of you who are struggling with little ones running around and have so much going on. Just to be kind and say we're not going to ask you to be glued to this screen for 40 minutes or so and try to make the point very quickly. But when we do that, 
more and more information than that would normally be included in a message if we were in person is left out. I'm telling you this because this morning's message is composed of a few of the clippings, if you will, from last week's message. Last week we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan so that we would know who our neighbor is and we would know what it looks like to be neighborly in the way that God intends. Our neighbor is whoever needs us in the moment. And further, if I'm going to love my neighbor, it's going to be more than a sentimental feeling. It's going to be, it's going to be a sacrificial action. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. And hopefully you got that last week, although we do understand the audio wasn't great because we struggled. We had some technical issues due to a microphone. But if you didn't get it last week, then you just got it this week. Now you know what the Good Samaritan is all about. Um, but after that message, Tim and I were talking, as we often do, and I thought, I'm changing my metaphors here, but I thought, man, there's a lot of meat left on that bone. You know, it's like when you have that pork chop and you think you're all done, but then you see one more bite next to the bone. Well, it's kind of like I felt last week, I think I left half a pork chop on that bone. We need to get back to that parable because there are some interesting thoughts, some interesting ideas that I think are important uh, that we should try to cover. So that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to look at a few of those items that last week were part of the cutting room floor and this week have sort of been resurrected for your consumption. So if you have a Bible handy and you want to turn to Luke chapter 10, we're dealing with a parable of the Good Samaritan again. And I want to warn you up front, don't expect this to be a, a cohesive thematic message. Um, these are just some observations from the text that I think are noteworthy and I hope you find to be helpful. We start at the beginning of the parable, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So in this setting, we have an expert of the law standing over Jesus, so to speak, to test his mettle when it comes to the scriptures, to find out what he knows. It was a common occurrence. If you've read much of the New Testament at all, you know it was a common occurrence for people. They regularly approached Jesus with the intent of testing him. A few weeks ago, we dealt with the parable of the two debtors. And in the setting of that story was the home of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee very likely invited Jesus over to his house again to size him up. Simon wanted to know whether or not Jesus was a prophet. He, he invited Jesus to his house so that he could test him. And we noted then that Jesus was willing to undergo that sort of scrutiny. Jesus was always willing to be tested. And I think we should be as willing to be tested as our Lord is. Because one of the outcomes of that, if we're willing to be tested, if we're open to being questioned, even if people have hard questions about our faith, one of the outcomes of our being open to that is conversation. It's dialogue, right? And it is through conversation and dialogue, it is through sharing and reasoning and forming and reforming our thoughts that minds are changed and that people learn and that people grow. 
So as Christians, we want to uh, emulate, imitate that example of Jesus, and we want to be willing to have conversations. Remember that Jesus hung out with all kinds of people from all walks of life. Despite the criticism, that didn't slow him down. He would stop and talk with just about anyone. Now, why do I have to say this? Well, I feel like I need to say this because it's very um, common these days that people are quick to judge. They're quick to judge others uh, and their ideas or their understandings, and they're very willing to dismiss people who disagree with them. They might even unfriend them, you might say. So if you don't agree with me, then I can just sort of push you off and make you irrelevant. And actually, it isn't just that we unfriend or dismiss, it it gets worse. It is acceptable practice today to vilify, to attempt to shame those who disagree with a given point of view. Well, that's not really helpful when that happens. And as Christians, we don't want to close the door on the increasingly um, majority of people who don't agree with our values or ideas. We do not want to close the door on them, and we pray that they would not close the door on us, that we could talk about these things, that we could even uh, disagree, that we could agree to disagree, but we could have civil conversations. We want to be open, like Jesus, for conversations, even want to be open for scrutiny. And to that end, our job is to be prepared for those conversations. The Apostle Peter was writing to the first century Christians whose views were not particularly appreciated. In fact, they were being persecuted. And in his first epistle to them, he said, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, this is 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 15, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that is the people that are persecuting you, nor be troubled, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always being prepared to give a defense. Apologia, the Greek word from which we get our word apologetics, the defense of the faith. Always be ready with an answer when somebody asks you, why do you believe this? And why do you have such hope? But then there's a qualifier here, and it's an important one. Peter adds it, and I'm sure he adds it for a reason, right? He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's the way to come across as a Christian, with gentleness and respect. That's the way that Jesus came across. So Jesus didn't mind being tested, and neither should we worry about being tested. Our job really is just to make sure that we're up to the test, that we are prepared and able to respond with not memes and not dismissing and not unfriending, but with conversation. A second observation, uh, particularly relevant in light of the recent and, and tragic events going on in our country, is the presence in this parable of racism. A great divide existed, I noted it last week, between the Jews and the Samaritans. They really despised each other, and they had despised each other for a long time. At one point, when Jesus and his disciples were seeking to uh, pass through a village in Samaria, they were not allowed. They were not received, the Bible says. And so his disciples, James and John, look at Jesus and say, do you want us to rain down or call 
call down fire upon them. You want us to burn up these Samaritans. Of course, Jesus said no, but that's an indication of how little they value these Samaritans. The Samaritan woman at the well, if you read that account in John chapter 4, she was really flippant with Jesus. Jesus was there to offer her living water, but she was rather disrespectful. And when the disciples came back from their little jaunt into town to get something to eat, the scripture tells us that they were surprised that Jesus was talking with a Samaritan woman, James. Uh, John tells us that the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings with one another. So the differences were very real, and the hatred that they had for one another was racial. And racism, racism is this idea that um, a person has more or less value based on the color of their skin or based on where they come from, or the idea that one race is superior to another. Those differences that initially divided the Jews and the Samaritans, the, the issues of religion, the authority of Scripture, what actually constitutes Scripture, where do we worship, how do we worship, those were the things that started the feud, but they were no longer fuel for the hatred by Jesus' day. It really was simply race. A person was judged and a person was condemned based on race. And that is hardly a biblical position. And not only is it not a biblical position, it's sin. To harbor uh, resentment toward anyone because of the way they look, because of where they come from, because of their color, because of their ethnicity, is to abandon the fundamental concept that every human, every one of us, is made in the image of God. And for that very reason, every single human has innate value and innate dignity. Nobody's worth more than anybody else. Nobody deserves to be treated as inferior to anybody else. That's a, that's a true, general, biblical principle. But it goes even deeper than that for us as Christians. The Apostle Paul instructed the church at Galatia, Chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul's getting at there is that as followers of Christ, we have a Savior that we have put on. We have put on Jesus. And therefore, when we look at fellow believers, we are not looking at the color of their skin. We are not concerned with their nationality. We are seeing Jesus. On them, in them, we have put on a Savior. To be honest, living most of my life here in Maine, I've always felt a little disconnected from this issue of racism. And I would admit to you, and I think maybe confess is actually a better word, that I've been quite content to feel removed from this issue. But... Adopting that attitude, the attitude sort of as, well, this really isn't my problem, is kind of like not being bothered by the hole in the boat I'm in because it's not near me. Or to keep with our parable, doing nothing is like walking around the wounded man on the road. That's not a biblical position either, is it? 
Jesus tells this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, to give us an expanded view of who our neighbor is. And he tells that story to a man who's actually looking to, to narrow the idea of who his neighbor is. Jesus does this on purpose. The second greatest commandment in the scripture is to love our neighbor the way that we love ourselves. And if, in fact, my neighbor is the one who needs me in the moment, and if loving my neighbor means an actual commitment, not just a a sentimental feeling, but a sacrificial action, what is the work of a church like ours in the fight against racism? I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Though I am quite convinced of two approaches that, that won't work to bring lasting change in the issue of racism. The first I've already alluded to, and it's the cultural bullying that goes on with people who have differing ideas and different perspectives. Vic Fangio is a name that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to most of you. He's a head coach in the NFL. He just recently stated that he does not see racism at all in the NFL. That's the National Football League, for those of you who don't follow it. He was soundly and roundly criticized and shamed from all sides for his observation. And late in the week, surprise, surprise, he issued an apology, very likely crafted by the public relations department of the Denver Broncos. So my point is this. Vic Fangio said he didn't see racism at all in the NFL. A lot of other people do. If there indeed is racism in the NFL, Vic Fangio is not going to have his heart changed. And he's not going to have his eyes opened by being browbeaten by the media into a position that he doesn't really agree with. That's going to make him a little embarrassed. That may even make him resentful, but it's not going to make him repentant. Someone has to help him see what he honestly doesn't see. He's not a bad person for saying he doesn't see it. Because if it's really there, and I, I can't imagine that it's not, If it's really there, then it's not going to be a hard job for someone to help him see it. That, my friends, is called a conversation. We do not need to punish people for being ignorant. When people are ignorant, in the truest sense of the word, they have to be taught. And along the way, We should be humble and and willing ourselves to be enlightened also. Second, the solution to racism anywhere is not going to be political. We have got to stop. Christians have got to stop putting our eggs in the politicians' baskets. Racism is an issue that transcends politics. In some ways, it has been exacerbated by politics. In other ways, it has been manipulated and has been utilitarian for politicians. It has been useful for them. So its solution will never be purely political. 
as Pastor Vody Bosham put it, we're not seeing terrible things in our culture because we vote the wrong way. We're seeing terrible things in our culture because men love darkness rather than light. This is not a political, partisan issue. Pastor Adrian Adriel Sanchez put it in a recent podcast. He said, when we call out the evil of racism, we're not identifying with one party or another. We're identifying with the word of Almighty God. More than programs and mandates and protests and laws, which at times have been useful and at other times not, more than these things, we need changed hearts. Those things don't really usually change hearts. Governments don't change hearts. God changes hearts. So seriously, pray with me to discern the work of a church like ours against racism. In this fight, if you have some ideas, you share them with me. You educate me, and I'm I'm open to it. And in the process, I think wherever this takes us, wherever we go, moving forward, we know it's going to have to have its beginnings in our own reformation, isn't it? In our own personal reformation of our thinking on the issue. Jesus hates racism. And so should we. And so the first step is to make sure that we really do. And after that, we'll see what happens. Finally, today I want to finish with the gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Not every scripture uh, describes the gospel specifically, but all of the scriptures are related to the gospel in some way because the Bible is not just a collection of a bunch of stories. It is the story of God's plan of redemption that culminates in Jesus Christ. Most of the sermons you'll hear coming from this pulpit hopefully will include the gospel. We are preaching the gospel and we're trying to apply the gospel. This isn't a new idea. It's not a novel idea. In fact, if we go back to the words of Charles Spurgeon as he taught so many people, this is what he had to say. People have often asked me, what is the secret of your success? And I always answer that I have no other secret but this, that I have preached the gospel. Not about the gospel, but the gospel the full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ, who is the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Christ in the sermon. You remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man, and when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer, but at last he said, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all. For there was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you're preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Well, then I will go over every hedge and ditch, but that, but what I will get at him. So must we do, Spurgeon says, brethren, we must have Christ 
in all our discourses. Whatever else is in or not in them, there ought to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save a soul. Take care, he said, that it is so when you are called to preach before Her Majesty the Queen, and if you have to preach to chairwomen or chairmen, still always take care that there is the real gospel in every sermon. So where is the gospel in the parable of the Good Samaritan? What in there points us to the gospel? Well, the gospel is the answer to the question that the expert in the law began with. This is how the whole parable begins, right? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And through the exchange came back the answer. If you want to inherit eternal life, you've got to love God and your fellow man perfectly. Now, the response to those requirements from any honest and aware person would have been, that's impossible. I can't do it. That's impossible. I'm doomed. We're all doomed. I've never been able to love God perfectly, and I surely can't love my fellow man perfectly. What, what on earth is there left for me to do? Norval Geldenhuis, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, actually says this much better than I can, so I'm going to quote him here for a moment as we wrap up. He says, The irrevocable word of God still remains valid, that he who observes the law perfectly will live. He who always loves God and his fellow man will inherit eternal life. But alas, no man has ever been able to observe the law perfectly, nor can anyone do so. And because no imperfect observance of the law, however excellent it may be, can be accepted, and because the judgment of God, the soul that sins, even if only on a single occasion, shall die, is just as irrevocable, we know that no man can ever inherit eternal life on the grounds of his own merit. But God be praised that Christ Jesus, as man, lived a life of complete love towards God and men, and as the entirely innocent one endured death for us on the cross, forsaken by God, so that by faith we are absolved from the death we deserve and inherit eternal life. If the expert in the law had been honest and said to Jesus, I cannot do that. I can't love God perfectly, and I can't love my fellow man perfectly. Jesus would have said, I know you can. And you know what? It's okay, because I'm going to do that for you. Jesus would have said, just believe me. And if you pay attention, you're going to see this very soon. Just believe me and believe in what I'm talking about, and you will live. Listen, you don't have to be perfect to have eternal life, because Jesus was. Jesus is, and he has fulfilled all the requirements needed for you to have eternal life, for us to have eternal life. He has fulfilled all the requirements on our behalf. And the only thing that we have to do, he is willing to allow his work to stand as ours. The only thing that we have to do is to receive that, is to believe that, to trust in Christ, to believe what he has done. And from there, from that position of faith in Jesus, 
from that admission that Jesus paid it all for me, from that understanding of salvation by grace, that I can't earn it, I haven't earned it, I won't earn it, but Jesus has, has secured it for me. From that position of faith, He fills us with His Holy Spirit, with a powerful love for God, and a moving love for our fellow man. And that's what enables us as Christians to be good Samaritans. And that's what will allow us to fulfill the command that Jesus gave to this expert in the law. After he told the story of the Good Samaritan, he said essentially, take heed of what I've just told you. Go and do thou likewise.